This is episode nine of the Immunology Podcast, Lymphocyte Activation with Dr. Mark Jenkins. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have an absolute pillar of the immunology community here on the podcast. We are talking with Dr. Mark Jenkins from the University of Minnesota about his work in understanding lymphocyte activation in order to improve vaccines and prevent autoimmunity. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Are you interested in differentiating human pluripotent stem cells into monocytes? The StemDiff monocyte kit from Stem Cell Technologies generates millions of monocytes ready for downstream assays or further development into macrophages or dendritic cells. Learn more at stemcell.com forward slash monocyte kit. Well, hey there, Brenda. Hi, Jason. How are you today? Good, good. Are you ready for a T-cell day? Yes. Excited. Very exciting day. Excellent. Well, I know our interview later is all about T-cells, but uh, I think we have a few papers that cover this topic today too, don't we? Yes, we do. I also have some non-T cells, so it has to keep it to keep it balanced. But yeah, T cell day today. All right. Well, why don't we hit the T cells first, and then we'll we'll come back and do all those other important things. I guess I'll start. Uh, I have one about immunometabolism. You know, another trendy field where you combine two important words, immunology and metabolism, and make a whole new field uh, out of the both of them together, which is how you get grants. So that immuno- easy. Yeah, that easy, right? Just immediately get it. Outstanding scores, tens all around from the NIH. There you go. One and done. No, but uh, in all seriousness, this is a cool paper. It's called Metabolic Control of TFH, that's T follicular cells, and Humoral Immunity by Phosphatidylethanolamine, or PEA. So this is by Wu Tong Fu, is the first author. It's in Nature, here published July of 2021. And what's really cool about this paper is um, it shows that PE or PEA, it goes by both, but we'll use PE, shorter, phosphatidylethanolamine. Uh, so PE is one of uh, the lipid components of the membrane, but it's also a secondary uh, messenger molecule. But it's it's kind of in the same realm of PIP2 and PIP3, but not the same, but kind of in the same general family. And they really linked the, the, they tried to really establish the link between the regulation of this pathway and T follicular cells. And so they actually did a CRISPR knockdown screen and found out that the pathway involved in the metabolism and production of PE is very important for the development of T8, TFH or T follicular helper cells. And that you have to have it for humoral immunity to properly work. And what's interesting about PE is that it's usually on the inter- inner leaflet of the membrane, but can be on the outer leaflet. And they established that it's the presence on the outer leaflet and its co-localization with CXCR5 is really driving this process. So they show that de novo synthesis of PE through a specific pathway, so the cytidine diphosphate CDP PE pathway, and there's several pathways that can affect PE, but they show that through this pathway, it, they court it, that this pathway prevents internalization and degradation of CXCR5. And then if you delete one gene, PCYT2, which is one of the synthesis genes, versus PCYT1A, and that second one is a different pathway. It's the CDP choline pathway. So only if you really hit the PE pathway controlled by CDP. What ends up happening is activated T cells 
do not differentiate into uh, follicular cells, helper cells. And then you have reduced humoral immune responses. And it's done by post-transcriptional mechanisms. This is all based on the signals coming in, synthesizing the lipid, and that prevent and maintaining stabilization of CXCR5. So it's pretty cool. Anytime you work with lipids, which I've had to do with my prior work, it's a pain. It's really, they can be very hard to work with. Extracting and quantifying lipid levels from membranes of cells is always finicky. And so being able to have a good read of that is hard. And so they were able to do that here. They used a mass spec after lipid isolation. You can also use mass ELISAs. There's different ways to do it. But and they, they were able to do that and really show the, that in various knockouts, there's different levels of lipids. They did staining and showed the lipid co-localization because they can use a fluorescent version of this lipid that's uptaken and then show the co-localization of it with CXCR5. And it was pretty neat. So they were able to really link a very specific lipid metabolism pathway with downstream effects for differentiation of T follicular helper cells. Very interesting. And of course, CXCR5 is one of the major uh, markers for, for follicular helper cells. So that makes makes a lot of sense. But how exactly does, do they dive deeper into how exactly uh, PE stabilizes CXCR5 in the surface? So it co-localizes with it. So, so the, it, CXCR5 is found in regions of high PE. And so they do some really crazy co-localization experiments using so TURF, so total internal reflection microscopy storm. So this is one of these super micro, super uh, resolution technologies to, you know, break some optical limits and have better point-to-point co-localization analyses. And so they're able to take that microscopy and really show that the PE is co-localizing with the receptor. And so it's mm-hmm. it being there that's preventing its internalization. So the the lipid prevents the internalization of the receptor. How the cells know to internalize receptors in the absence of the lipid, they don't know, but already at that point, you're getting into a whole other set of pathways, but the lipid is preventing by co-localizing its internalization. And do follicular helper cells have higher levels of PE in their membranes than other CD4 cells? Do they look at that too? Ooh, I have to remember that one. Um, I think they do. I think they are actually upregulated and they show that. That's one of the later figures, one of the extended ones. So they show it, they show it's on the exterior surface more. So PEs in all cells, but they show that there's more of it on the exterior surface on T follicular helper cells. And accumulation of it occurs during T follicular helper cell differentiation, but not TH1 cell differentiation. If anyone wants to see that, that is extended data figure, 60 <laughs> million. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, and... yeah, yeah, 16. <laughs> I mean, these papers that have just pages and pages of, of, of supplementary data, it's sometimes can be very daunting to look for the details uh, among all those figures. I just wonder, I, I ask these questions because I wonder, are we having kind of a chicken and egg situation? Is, the, is a follicular helper cell uh, ha- kind of drive the accumulation of PE on the membrane to stabilize this very important receptor? Or does the presence of PE re- is? I guess it would say is required to generate follicular Correct. helper if you, if cells. Correct. If you if you knock with. out the PE pathway, you don't get follicular helper cells. So you really need that in order for for the development of this of the subgroup. Yep. Okay. Very and interesting. The, and the CXCR5 signaling downstream. So if you don't have the CR, so if you put CXCR5 back in or stabilize it, you can override this. But mm-hmm. if you don't. And then it won't be there, and then it doesn't work, and then you don't get follicular right. helper cells. 
Well, why don't we move now from metabolism to microbiome and talk about a paper that was published in Cell, uh, coming from uh, first authors Crystal Nungao Makamdop, Arti Tala, and Ashish Sharma. Shout out uh, from the University of Minnesota, Emory, and the NIH. And that is titled Translocated Microbiome Composition Determines Immunological Outcome in Treated HIV Infection. In this publication, uh, the authors follow a cohort of 11 patients that are treated with antiretroviral drugs uh, after being diagnosed with HIV infection. So as a little bit of background, so I think our listeners probably know that HIV has a particular tropism towards CD4 T cells and infection with this virus results in a pretty much depletion of CD4 T cell populations in patients. And this has, of course, the best devastating uh, consequences to the immune system and, and also to the integrity of the mucosal barrier in the gut because, yeah, all the cells that are there keeping homeostasis are not there anymore. So patients also show translocation of bacterial products across the, the gut barrier and alterations, general alterations of their microbiome, dysbiosis, and this contributes to the comorbidities that are observed uh, in, in AIDS um, and a general systemic inflammation, which is, of course, detrimental to the quality of life and the survival of patients uh, with HIV. So combined antiretroviral therapy, or CART, is you know, our current uh, standard of treatment against HIV and can have really, really beneficial uh, results. So patients have almost pretty much undetectable uh, HIV levels upon treatment, and they can reconstitute and recover their CD4 T cells uh, in, uh, in, a, so in, in, the, in throughout several months of treatment. So this, as I mentioned, uh, this paper, they follow 11 patients, and uh, they are uh, in uh, Uganda, and they see that they can, they can achieve virus suppression around month four for most of the patients. And when they look into this, they have a, they look at the cytokine and chemokines in the plasma of these patients. And it's very interesting because they see uh, a fluctuation of different chemokine and, and cytokine groups uh, that kind of tell a little bit of a story of the, of, uh, of the treatment. So what they see is an initial pro-inflammatory cluster that includes IL-1-beta, IL-6, IL-8, and that is increased uh, following the initiation of the treatment. Uh, and then they see also around one year, uh, they see a progressive increase of IL-17 and TNF-alpha, which uh, then decline when they, they measure again at the two-year mark. Uh, but by this time, there's a third cluster of cytokines, which is prevalent, which is a more homeostatic TH, homeostatic TH1, TH2 uh, cytokine cluster in different gamma, IL-2, IL-4, uh, IL-7. And uh, they see that this uh, this is what they observe in patients that then uh, recover the, their CD4 uh, compartment around the two-year mark. And the, the, the authors um, have a model which is also supported by other publications in which this initial inflammation, which probably is driven by the presence of all of these microbial uh, products that are translocating into the blood and uh, is, is, is in, in really inducing innate immunity, and then a 
more TH17 like response around the year one favors the recomposition of the mucosal surface and a kind of more sturdy protection against this translocation around the year one. And then around year two, what you see is a normalization of the cytokines of the immune system uh, and a reduction of this innate immune response, which of course would be detrimental in the long term. And in, in fact, what they see and other, others too, is that the initial inflammation correlates with a better reconstitution of CD4 T cells. And, but if this inflammation persists into year two, uh, it has the opposite effect. And when they look into the microbial diversity, and for this, they, may, they, they look into, uh, they do deep sequencing of DNA and RNA in the plasma. So they look at translocation of microbial products and microbial DNA uh, and genetic information. And they see that of also this, this uh, values, uh, this, uh, the composition of the microbiome uh, also uh, fluctuates throughout treatment. And they zero in into, for in this case, a particular uh, genre of bacteria, which is the serratia, um, which associates with an increased pro-inflammatory and TH17 cytokine levels, uh, particularly at the beginning of treatment. And... They also, so the way they see is that also in vitro, when they co-culture uh, these bacteria or uh, products from these bacteria with uh, uh, PBMCs, they also see that they can uh, induce the production of IL-1-beta, IL-6, TNF. And this is kind of specific of this particular genre, not others. And it has probably has to do with specific lipopolysaccharides that are found in, in, in this particular species. And so... What the so long story short, because they do a lot of analysis and they also look into patients from other pa uh, countries, from uh, Canada, for example, uh, that have uh, probably different microbiome compared to people from Uganda, and they they conclude in a model in which CD4 T cell recovery is benefited by an initial pro-inflammatory pro cytokine milieu, uh, a reconstitution of the gut a barrier with a TH17 uh, response, but then this is normalized around the around year two, and only then can a proper reconstitution of the CD4 T cell compartment be possible. So and I think it was very interesting and opens a lot of uh, avenues in treatment and understanding whether maybe particular uh, bacterial species could be beneficial for uh, favoring recovery uh, in patients treated for HIV infection. So that's really interesting. Uh, I think it goes, you know, obviously, you know, my belief about how important the microbiome is. Um, it's interesting though, with chicken and the egg with it, right? Like, so is this, you know, they're, they're showing some level of causal effect and the bacteria is going, but you know, the, the key experiment would be switching the microbiome in a person from one to the other and seeing if it could have an effect. Obviously that is probably, you know, you can't really do that with people easily. And so that's kind of out of the yeah. way, but it's interesting to see that this is happening. I think immuno, immuno oncology is now having a uh, heyday with the microbiome, and I'm, it's interesting to see that this is coming to other parts of immunology as well. I mean, it's obvious that I think it's obvious, obvious. It's been obvious for a long time the microbiome tones the immune system, but how it's having effect on all these other processes is, you know, an exciting time, frankly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then I guess the question is whether you can use this knowledge to 
you know, I don't know, put some probiotics or, or something like that on patients to improve their recovery in the long term. Uh, I think we're still far from that, but this is definitely a step in the right direction. I completely agree. So what else are we going to talk about today? Oh, well, I have one for you that is an interesting one. This gets really into some biophysics here and some uh, chemistry. So it's it's interesting. This is also in nature. It's a, a title is a condensate hardening drug blocks RSV replication in vivo from Jennifer Riso Ballester, Nature, also July 7th, 2021 here. So RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, is a virus that really hits kids hard. It's a, it's a major pathogen. And what they found here that was really interesting is that it's a, the type of virus that likes to replicate in inclusion bodies. And they found actually that some of these uh, viral inhibitors they're looking at, in this case, it's a peptide A3E, account, or sorry, it's a steroid alkaloid cyclopamine. And uh, there's another chemical analog related to it called AE3. Um, so these small molecules actually affect the inclusion body and they're known to work, but they were, there's some side effects from in, with some of these cause they affect the hippo pathway. And so, and the hedgehog pathways and a bunch of other stuff, actually make sure we make sure it's, it is the hippo, but, um, sorry, it's hedgehog. So they affect the hedgehog pathway, which is why they've had trouble being used in kids. Cause you don't want to be inhibiting important differentiation pathways in children especially young kids, because RSV is in really young kiddos, like, you know, infants. Um, but the but they were able to then use this analog, which has less of that side effect, and they were able to delve into the mechanism. And the mechanism is what's key here, because they're able to really establish this mechanism, do it in a mouse model, and then have the analog, which has less of the off-target effect of affecting the uh, signaling of hedgehog, but does have the inhibitory effect. And how it works, and this is what's crazy, is that these inclusion bodies are this uh, condensate. So they're this weird uh, biomolecular entity, like this, this, this you know, phase transition condensate. And what they found is that this molecule disorganizes and hardens the condensates. And so by hardening it, it changes the properties of it, and they can't function to volley replicate. And the size of the molecules that can enter that condensate changes. So these originally these condensates are pretty tight, but they find that it can shift so that uh, you know 40 micrometer and then or intermediate and 70 micrometer can enter. And so as a result, they are they really demonstrate that um, by altering these condensates, you can affect the whole thing. So this basically this small molecule goes in affects these inclusion bodies by affecting the, the this phase of matter that they're in and then prevents viral replication. And that's the mechanism. So what's cool about this is it's previously had been, um, you know, this has been considered relatively undruggable. Inclusion bodies are hard to drug. Uh, this opens the size up so you can then drug them a second way by opening the, the, the so to speak, the pore size into the structures. And then secondly, it alters things by... Um, if you can alter the molecule, you're not trying to find something that fits the binding pocket of RSV that could also be binding hedgehog. You're instead altering the properties to affect the condensate state. And that's what matters. So it's basically opening up a whole new drug pathway through basically biophysical mechanisms. 
are other viruses that are also using the same condensate mechanism? Yeah. So they think, so inclusion bodies is something that's commonly seen in negative strand RNAs, and they're generally shown to be biomolecular condensates that form through phase separation. And so they're thinking this can be a general principle that applies outside of just RSV. Are they looking into human treatments or what are the limitations? So they started with mice and I think what they want to do next is find a better drug that has less off-target effects in mice that they know about and then go into people. That seems to be where they're going um, here. But they showed that it worked in the mice. Um, and then the next step is to find a better drug. But now it's basically opened a new category and mechanism of action, which is cool. And those are right, measurable, right? You can measure the condensate state. You can measure the pore size. So you can start screening compounds for that property, not inhibiting viral replication, for instance. Just work on the condensate and then go from there. Very interesting. I guess that this really this very key aspects of the viral replication pathway are obviously very clear targets, but if they're happening so deep into the cell, it must be in principle hard to to uh, target. Uh, you only can make very small molecules that can easily diffuse or be transported uh, without problem. Exactly. And what's interesting is that it, it, you know, as far as I know, and maybe I'm wrong and someone will at me, but uh, humans don't use condensates for a lot of their, you know, R, you know RNA or DNA or Right. Uh, protein replication, right? We don't, we, that's not a structure. And so you can target something like that. And that gives you that, you know, that nice thing we like in infectious disease where it affects the, the, the pathogen, but not the host. That's why you can get lots of antibiotics that don't have off target effects as much because, you know, we don't have cell wall synthesis in the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. the caveat being that that's been hard with some of these viruses and inclusion bodies to get them in and you have off target effects. And now they're finding a new mechanism of action, which is why it got in the nature. And it's pretty cool. They do some really cool experiments in here to get to it. A lot of fluorescence, you know, some biophysical property monitor measurements of these things, hypotonic lysis, all of that good stuff. Very interesting. I hope that they can continue into a human treatment because VSV can be a very devastating uh, infection for, for young children and for, of course, the immune, the immune compromised. So yeah, I mean, so RSV really affects sick kids. It's one of the things I saw a lot of, a lot of people get hospitalized or children get hospitalized, babies with RSV. And so, but then they're really sensitive to any of the off-target effects. So you have to have an even better tox profile because it's a kiddo. And mm -hmm. that's been hard with RSV. So to finish up today's roundup session, I want to talk about the latest installment uh, in COVID research for the vaccine-induced immune, immune thrombotic thrombotic thrombocytopenia, a saga, which has been really a, a headache for, for AstraZeneca and, and Johnson and & Johnson and their, and their adenoviral vector vaccines. So this story comes from the journal Nature. It's still under edit. It's been published ahead of print. And uh, it's titled Antibody Epitopes in Vaccine-Induced Immune Thrombotic Thrombocytopenia, first author Angela Huin from McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Um, so vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VIT, as I will uh, refer to it from now on, uh, is a very rare adverse effect of the adenoviral vector vaccines and uh, results in, as the name suggests, thrombosis, so uh, uh, blood clots, 
particularly this rare cerebral venous thrombosis, also severe thrombocytopenia or kind of depletion of, of the platelets in the blood, and which usually develops between 5 to 24 days after following the first dose of the vaccine. And this has been observed only for uh, the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson adenoviral vector vaccines. Uh, at the beginning, this, uh, the first uh, patients were uh, reported around April, and it was really, I remember, a lot of confusion around the syndrome and a lot of preoccupation, a lot of concern. Um, and very, sometime after the first cases were, um, were report, reported, there was uh, a, another syndrome that was identified as being very similar to VID which is known as, as HIT, which is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And in this uh, syndrome, which has been more characterized and has been known for many years, patients that are treated with heparin develop antibodies against a platelet factor 4, which is a small cationic protein that is contained within platelets, so it really goes around, and... Uh, the exposure to the heparin somehow, um, ex so the, the, the heparin somehow, somehow probably due to their structure as a large anionic polysaccharide exposes certain epitopes that are usually not available and induces a, a humoral response uh, or exacerbates a pre-existing humoral response against this uh, these antigens, these epitopes that are, are um, hidden in this PF4 uh, proteins and end up clustering and these this antibodies cluster uh, PF4 molecules and generate big uh, yeah, big clusters that end up binding and uh, cross-linking FC receptors on the platelets themselves and this causes activation and coagulation because this happens throughout the whole body. This is a very systemic response. So one of the first things that people saw is that anti-PF4 antibodies are in fact found in patients with VIT. And this made this kind of connection very clear. So what they make in this paper, in this study, they take five patients with VIT uh, that after receiving one single dose of AstraZeneca, and they look into the properties of their antibodies and trying to understand where in PF4 they're binding and how, how do they compare to a hit antibodies. And of course, they see that, uh, in fact, there are antibodies uh, recognizing PF4 at high levels in these patients. And after doing a lot of kind of structural analysis, and they also do uh, 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 kind of a, what, they, what they name as alanine scanning mutagenesis, so they are doing all these very uh, diver diverse mutants of PF4 in which they replace different, anti uh, different um, amino acids by with alanine and trying to understand which are the, the crucial amino acids for the binding of these antibodies. And so what they see is that the antibodies for, for from BIT patients bind to uh, different, not don't bind to the same places as uh, HIT antibodies. They have a, usually a higher binding response and they also bind to the areas in which are usually bound by, not by antibodies, but by heparin in the case of 
hit patients. So basically what they do is they characterize the antibodies. What is not clear yet, I think, is what what exactly induces the upregulation or the production at such high levels of these antibodies against PF4. I think that is still not clear. Uh, might be kind of some kind of immune activation from the adenoviral vector, from the DNA that is inside the adenovirus. Uh, but regardless of that, they show that these this antibodies can bind to PF4 in both places that, are, that already have been described for HIT, for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, but also other signs that are specific for this syndrome. And they suggest that, um, that then one of the potential treatments are high, le- high level of uh, in, in high dose uh, immunoglobulin in an intravenous injection that can compete with the IgGs uh, for the FC receptor and then re- reduce the cross-linking of it on platelets and then reduce uh, platelet activation. And they also see that uh, heparin, uh, in this case, would compete for binding with these antibodies as well. So I think in general, I think it's a really good uh, final piece of understanding the or the, the the mechanism of action of these antibodies. And I hope that this will lead to some some treatment options uh, for patients that unfortunately find themselves in this situation. So that's good to know that they're able to start linking these and get to it. I wonder, my only real question on this one, were they able to show that in, in the case of VIT, it's mostly with the adenoviral vectors. Were they able to show that this epitope doesn't appear in, say, uh, the mRNA vaccinated individuals to do that? Did they do that comparison and show that the epitope is only in adenoviral individuals? Not themselves, so they don't do it. They don't have any patients with with um, mRNA vaccination. The, there's a, I mean, but epidemiologically speaking, there are no events of VIT with patients that have been vaccinated with the mRNA vaccines. Uh, and there is a clear, uh, statistically significant increase in these events on people vaccinated with both AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson which really uh, points to the adenoviral vector having something to do. So one of the theories is that the double-stranded DNA can be released and can be part of, in the same way heparin uh, binds and generates these complexes, the same can be done, can be, for example, the DNA that is contained within these adenoviral vectors. Got it. All right. Well, I mean, I'm very happy that we have a COVID paper again. You know, we we skipped one, so we got to get back into it. Yes. Excellent. Well, Um, off to T-cell land. Here we go. We're going to be speaking to Dr. Mark Jenkins at the University of Minnesota in just a moment. But before we get to that, decade your lab with the Nature Protocol's wall chart outlining the production of CAR T-cells for therapy, from apheresis collection and T-cell enrichment to gene modification, expansion, and delivery. Request a free copy of the wall chart at the Stem Cell Technologies T-cell Therapy Resource Center by visiting www.stemcell.com slash T hyphen cell hyphen therapy. We are joined today by Dr. Mark Jenkins, who is a professor at the Department of Microbiology and Immunology and director of the Center for Immunology at the University of Minnesota. The focus of the Jenkins lab is on CD4 T-cell and B-cell activation. And these are fields to which Dr. Jenkins has done really huge contributions. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Immunology Podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. 
Uh, I was hoping to start our conversation today uh, with some of your uh, early research uh, as, um, as an immunologist who started in the 2010s. I take, for example, CD28 activation for granted. Now that I realize it always existed, we always knew what CD28 did. Uh, but I think a lot of our listeners will be very interested in listening or hearing your experience actually being the first person to find out and publish what CD28 does and how important it is as a cost-immediatory molecule for T-cell activation. I was hoping you can maybe take us with you to that time and how has, how, what was the, the state of the art of T-cell activation back then in 1992? And what have we learned since then? Yeah, yeah, great question. Well, you know, that I worked on uh, co-stimulation or on, on T-cell activation when I was a postdoc at the NIH with Ron Schwartz. And um, at that time, the, the thinking in the field was that um, and this was, you know, not too long after the T cell receptor had been discovered. You know, I started doing this work in 1986, and so, you know, the discovery of the T cell receptor by uh, Mark Davis and Steve Hedrick was, you know, just incredibly exciting to actually understand, you know, how T cells recognize antigens in the form of peptides bound to MHC. There were also discoveries around that time from Howard Gray and Emil Yunano and others that actually demonstrated that peptides bind MHC and that there's a single ligand for the T cell receptor. And so this was, you know, just took T, took T cell biology at, uh, um, from the dark ages into the light. But, at, but there was then an, an incredible focus on the TCR. And so a, a question that I was addressing in my research as a postdoc was, was the T, although we knew the TCR was necessary to act activate T cells, was it sufficient? Was that the only signal you need to get a, a T cell to become activated? And so in my research, I was um, working with a chemical fixative that basically um, fixed antigen presenting cells, killed them, turned them into little billiard balls, but their surface molecules were intact. And uh, what, I what I found was that they could present antigen to these T cell clones that we were working with. Uh, we could show that the T cells got larger, um, but they didn't proliferate, didn't make cytokines. And, and, and if we came back then and tried to stimulate them with viable antigen presenting cells and antigen, they also didn't respond to that. So that led to two concepts. One, the TCR, although it's necessary for T cell activation, is not sufficient antigen presenting cells do something else. And if they don't do that something else, the T cells actually become unresponsive. So this idea of T cell energy. So, um, and then of course that spurred a tremendous interest in what the something else was. What was the other signal that antigen presenting cells provide to T cells other than present peptide MHC to TCR? And um, I was highly influenced uh, when I was still in Ron's lab, but then as I started my own lab in a study that Carl June had done, I saw he was one of your other guests, and Carl had found that stimulating human T cells with this chemical uh, called PMA, a four-ball ester, um, could um, act give, give this kind of weak T cell activation 
that wasn't blocked by cyclosporin A, which we knew at that time was a TCR blocker. So this, uh, and, and we had found that we could take antigen-presenting cells and PMA and stimulate weak T-cell proliferation. We could show that that wasn't blocked by cyclosporin A. And, um, and Carl could show that with an antibody against CD28 or, or what was called TP44 at that time. And so I, you know, figured that TP44, when we now know as CD28, was a great candidate for the receptor on the T cell that could be receiving this other signal. And so we did some experiments with human T cells that were specific for tetanus toxoid and um, could show that CD28 signaling produced a very powerful synergy with TCR, allowing full activation of the T cell. And Jim Allison at that same time, using a mouse a model, showed that that CD28 signal prevented energy. And so this work, you know, really, you know, led to this idea of the two signal model that had been proposed by Kevin Lafferty before and by Mel Cohn uh, and Peter Brecher, but this, you know, was ex actual experimental e experimental evidence for this kind of idea. So, what led to the initial thought experiment, or you know, let's take a step back. Obviously, when you look at something in hindsight, it seems like a linear story where you had and there was an idea, and then you solve something, and it was big and great and discovered, and then it goes on. And any any all of us in the bench know that's often not what happens. What led for you? back then to the original idea is a TCR, you know, as you said, necessary, but is it sufficient? What, what, what led to the question of, is it sufficient? And you yeah. mentioned Carl June's work got you down the path in part because he found something else that was having this effect, but what led to that, that question of, is it sufficient that drove this? Yeah. That I, at that time, the easiest way to study antigen specific T cells in the mouse was through what are called T cell hybridomas. You know, they're the they're the T cell version of um, the kind of hybridomas, B cell hybridomas that make monoclonal antibodies. You take a, a T cell that has a specific TCR, you fuse it to a tumor cell, you know, it proliferates forever. Um, but if you add the right antigen with the right with antigen presenting cells with the right MHC molecule, you could get those T cells to make IL-2. And so it 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 looked like from these hybridoma cells that that was really the only signal they needed was just this signal through the TCR. And then we tried to apply that idea to our T, our T cell clones that weren't transformed. They're regular T cells. They wouldn't proliferate unless you stimulated them and found that you know through various kinds of experiments that when we just gave that pure TCR signal, they didn't, they didn't seem to proliferate. So there was a disconnect between the, what these tumor cells would do and what the normal T cells would do. And so we were trying to figure that, figure out, well, what is that? What is that difference? What is that thing? And, um, and there was also a large literature at that time about interleukin-1, which was one of the few known cytokines at that time, that it might be have this kind of co-stimulatory activity, that it was TCR plus IL-1. And so that idea was out there bouncing around as well. But we could quickly show that you know in our system, IL-1 didn't do anything. And so, um, and we had other complicated cellular immunology experiments where we could provide this co-stimulatory signal on a different cell than what was presenting peptide MHC. 
so we could work out some of its properties. So we knew that the ligand was on the surface of the APC, it wasn't secreted. Um, and of course that turned out to be CD86, you know, the ligand for CD28. Um, so that, that's kind of the way the, the um, cause Ron Schwartz's, you know, idea was to use artificial membranes and then just put in TCR and then everything else that's needed and produce this kind of artificial antigen presentation system. But to do that, you need to know all the things to put in. And um, other people like Mike Dustin and, you know, did, did that well um, after Ron's in our work. But um, so it was, you know, this drive to figure out the minimal activation requirements. Can I ask, at what point was TCR simulation with peptide, I don't want to say replaced, but uh, complemented by anti-CD3 antibodies for, for stimulation of T-cells. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that came from, uh, from expedience. You know, to do the kind of experiments that we did in, the, in those days, you had to have these T-cell clones that you could grow in vitro, maintain them without dying, becoming senescent. Um, there weren't other, it was in the early days where it was hard to get antigen specific T cell responses just from like primed lymph nodes in mice or from PBMC. And so once it was clear that, you know, in the old parlance, you know, TCR was signal one and CD28 was signal two, and there were antibodies against the agonistic antibodies against these targets, you could just do a lot of experiments with, you know, just any old T cells from animals or humans. And so that did really drive the field because it was so easy to, for anybody to do. And I think this kind of takes me to this next thing I wanted to discuss with you, which is after this publication, and I think in general in your work, you have, spoke, you have focused a lot on CD4 T cell activation and uh, the role of uh, CD4s and uh, in, in the activation of B cells. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think are the, the, the main challenges when studying CD4 T cells and their differentiation, their activation? Because in the CD8 field, sometimes I feel like the, the, the readily available, very efficient um, multimers or tetramers that are used for, for picking up the cells and the kind of less complex differentiation of the cells uh, make for a slightly different study, a field of study. What has been your experience by understanding the cells and their their specificity uh, throughout? Yeah, your 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 research. Yeah, you you hit it right on the head. Um, everything has been harder um, to make to study uh, CD4 T cells. Um, there one and one of the things that I, the main things is that. Um, We've done studies now, and uh, other people have done studies, which basically show that you know a single naive T cell can, will make about a thousand effector cells. Let's say for argument, when you stimulate it, a single naive uh, CD8 T cell can make ten thousand, so ten times more. So any system, or in, in any experiment where you're trying to identify antigen-specific cells it's gonna be 10 times harder for CD4 cells because they're 10 times more rare. And so 
these limit of detection problems for CD4 T cells are a huge, huge issue. And then, and then of course, the state of the art way to find antigen specific T cells is with peptide MHC, tetramers or multimers. So for, for class one molecules, you can make the class one heavy chain and beta two microglobulin in bacteria. You can make huge quantities of them, get purify them to homogeneity, mix them together with your peptide of interest. They reform. You can get these beautiful monomers that you can then biotinylate and make tetramers and in huge quantities. So for most class two molecules, you can't express them in bacteria. They don't form properly without proper glycosylation. So then you have to use mammalian or eukaryotic expression system. The yields are lower. It's harder to figure out what the minimal peptides are because you know class one basically binds a nine amino acid peptide. For CD4 cells, even though the core that binds MHC2 is nine amino acids, there's all this stuff hanging off the ends. So it's harder to figure out what the real epitope is. Um, the peptides, because the groove of class two is open, the peptide can within, let's say, even like a 20 amino acid peptide can have three different nine amino acid cores that bind in three different registers. If that happens, you basically have three totally distinct epitopes within that. And when you try to make a tetramer, you have streptavidin that's got three different kinds of arms. Very few molecules have four identical arms. You know, one nightmare after another, technically. Um, and so the for a while, T cell receptor transgenic mice leveled the playing field because you could make a mouse that had a monoclonal repertoire of T cells that were CD4 T cells and saw a known peptide MHC2 ligand. And so we, you know, we developed this method of taking a few T cells from a mouse like that, putting them in, putting them in a normal mouse, and then tracking them after you give the antigen. And so you could elevate the frequency a little bit by that adoptive transfer trick, solving the rare you know, cell problem, and then they would expand enough you could find them. And, um, and that was really you know, a boon to the field. You still see that done all the time by people. But you know, we, inspired by Leo Lef late, the late Leo LaFrancois' discovery, uh, that, that although it's incredibly useful, when you artificially elevate the number of T cells, you paradoxically get some abnormal T cell activation, mainly inefficient activation because all these T cells compete with each other for a fixed amount of peptide MHC. And so that really drove me, even though I loved, you know, adoptive transfer of T cell transgenic cells, you know, that was, that was pioneered in my laboratory. We try not to do that anymore. And so get, study the real repertoire with, um, with tetramers now. And then the final insult <laughs> is that the C, the, um, when a CD8 T cells recognizes peptide MHC1 with its TCR, the CD8 molecule binds to the alpha-3 domain of, the, of that class one molecule, it kind of helps the binding. So when you do peptide MHC1 tetramer staining, you get this, you get this uh, affinity boost from CD8. Well, the affinity of CD4 for the analogous site on class two is at least 200 times weaker. And so peptide MHC2 tetramer binding to CD4 T cells does not get aided by CD4. 
And so tetramer staining isn't as good. So, you know, so at every level, it's, it's been it's been harder. And that has really caused the CD8 T cell, uh, the study of CD8 T cells to dominate most of our understanding of fundamental concepts in T cell biology, you know, related to effector cell expansion, immunological memory, and things like that. CD4 cells lag behind. And then of course, they also have this confusing, you know, really cool, but as you point out, CD8s basically have one fate, they get activated, they differentiate, they make gamma interferon, they kill. You know, that's a little too simple, but for CD4 cells, you know, they can become TH1, TH2, TH17, TH9, in, you know, IT rigs, but, you know, endless, not endless, but much, much heterogeneity, each with their own differentiation rules. And, um, and some, you know, the, TF, the, the T follicular helper cell for which we still do not have an in vitro system to generate. So lots and lots of challenges. So to go on with this a little bit, um, you had mentioned the tetramers that work really well for MHC1, but not MHC2. And I know one of the papers you'd put out recently was an engineered tetramer. And it was an interesting approach using a combination of CRISPR directed evolution in these tetramers. So kind of two questions for you. One, could you walk through for the, you know, the listeners at a high level, what you guys ended up doing in that paper? And then secondly, did you guys gain any understanding about fundamental biology seeing in the end what these modified tetramers were? Because you mentioned that the, you know, that the MHC2 system, the T helper system doesn't have the arm that binds as well. That's 200 fold less. And now yeah. you've made some tetramers that work better. Did that in that process? So, a, how'd you make it? But did that process teach you anything about, you know, structure function relationship? Because I always put my biochemistry hat on. That's my yeah. background in relation to, you know, the T cell receptor system and MH two that could be helpful going forward. Yeah, great. That's that's you. You're right on, man. Um, so, as I mentioned, class one peptide MHC complexes can bind, T, you know, when you make a tetramer, they, those can bind TCR, TCRs bind, you know, the peptide MHC groove, and then the CD8 molecule binds the stock of the class one molecule. And that helps the tetramer bind. For, for CD4 cells, they, they have a TCR, they bind peptide MHC2, but their CD4 molecule binds the stock of class two so weakly, it doesn't aid tetramer binding. So we used molecular evolution, which is this incredibly powerful technique to screen a library of class two molecules where we had directed mutations to this site on class two where CD4 is thought to bind. And then using an iterative cell sorting technique with a tetrameric form of CD4, we found class two mutants that bind CD4 at about the affinity that CD8 binds class one. So now when you make a tetramer from those class two molecules, you detect more cells in a polyclonal repertoire than you do with the wild type uh, conventional tetramer with the same peptide in it. So it's it varies, but it's about twofold uh, up to about fourfold more cells. So number one, we were missing, you know, half the cells that were responding to the antigen, number one. Uh, and now the now we're doing experiments to say, well, was there anything special about the half we were missing? To get to your point, uh, Jason, and um, and we're we're doing that now 
you know, those kind of experiments now. We have, we have some interesting findings with regulatory T cells actually along those lines, um, but that's work in progress. So, I mean, even if we find these, and the cells we were missing probably had lower affinity TCRs. So they needed that CD4 boost to bind the tetramer. And so it, it's you know, not crazy that those lower affinity cells could have different, um, get activated in a different way because they receive a weaker TCR signal on average. Um, and so we're trying to sort through that all now. But, in, but if nothing else, we've made it twice as easy to find the relevant cells. And so, as I pointed out, that, that alone, I think, is going to help. The, and the other thing is that because these peptide MHC1 tetramers bind better, they've actually are able to bind to, to uh, tissue sections. So you can use them to do anatomic studies to see, you know, gee, these, these CD8 cells that see this tumor antigen are either in the tumor, they're on the edge of the tumor. Class two tetramers, because they bind less well, historically can't bind tissue sections. So we have some uh, preliminary data now that these evolved tetramers can do that. So that's gonna open up some nice uh, ways to study the anatomy of the, of the CD4 T cell response that heretofore we could only do with artificial TCR transgenic adoptive transfer experiments. So I have so many questions, but I would like to first ask, how did you solve the other issues in making MHC2 tetramers, particularly regarding expressing the proteins and loading those peptides? Yeah. Well, John Kapler uh, and Jerry Nepom and some other pioneers uh, um, had um, really figured, you know, figured out ways to express MHC2 molecules in, in eukaryotic cells, usually with viral expression systems. And um, and Baculovirus, I think, is what Cap the Kapler lab normally uses, and so we piggyback piggybacked on their their technology um, to get that going in our lab. We we made a few tweaks, but um, you know most of the credit would go to them for um, for for that aspect of it. Um, the the thing that we really did add though was this um, idea of using tetramers to enrich the rare cells. You know, in the same way you can use magnetic beads to isolate rare populations of, you know, you know, some very rare cell of any kind, like a stem cell. Um, we could use that with tetramers then and enrich the antigen-specific cells from huge numbers of cells, you know, from like all the cells in the mouse. And then enrich them so that we could detect basically every, tet every tetramer binding cell by flow cytometry without having to pass, you know, 300 million cells through the flow cytometer, total cells. So we improve, we improve the sensitivity by about a hundredfold with this enrichment technique using tetramers that we make ourselves, but based on their, their technology. And I don't do a, a much work with tetramers. So my understanding is that so you express these proteins in, in, in a eukaryotic system. You yep. make them, they can be used as markers, but then do you also have to load a then antigenic peptide into them as well and do you guys is the is the tricky part the tetramer and not the peptide presumably so you can then swap out different peptides later on and see with different peptides with your you know super tetramer do different things is that is that kind of the next level yeah well 
again, all those things have been problematic. You know, in, in, a, in an actual antigen presenting cell, there, the, the class two molecule gets made with the invariant chain peptide bound in the group. And then there's this other class two like molecule, you know, HLA-DM or H2DM that basically removes CLIP and allows a new peptide, you know, let's say from a microbe or something to bind. So, you know, if you express like we do with these MHC2 molecules in insect cells, you know, they don't express HLA-DM. Um, and so getting peptide exchange to work, the way you can do it so easily with class one has been a really problem. You can do it for a few allylic forms of class two, but for most, you know, our favorite molecule, the class two molecule of B6 mice, you know, where most of the gene targeted, you know, strains exist, peptide exchange cannot be done without H2DM in the system. So we do have an exchange system now, but the way we normally do it is we use a, a, the, the trick of John Kepler um, to attach a peptide covalently to the beta chain. And then, and then that will flop into the groove when the alpha chain of class two pairs with the beta chain. And then that peptide can't come out. But a, a peptide exchange system that works well for mouse MHC and, and for other allelic forms of human MHC would be a really important step forward, I think, in tetramerology. See, there's a lot of to be done yet, but it's very exciting to see that these new, uh, these kind of tools are also starting to be more available for CD4 research, and hopefully will help us understand more about what what take what uh, determines the fate of a CD4 T cell. And in that in that topic, I was hoping to also hear from you. What do we know about how the specificity of the TCR, the the strength? of the yeah. TCR signaling. And in, in case of your one of also one of your very recent papers in which you look into th particularly TH1 differentiation and this two-step uh, model, yeah. what do we understand about the different influences on C4 TCR differentiation? Yeah. Well, I think that the, the major interest, the, ma the major influence are cytokines from the innate immune system. You now kind of as we've thought all along. You know, I think the, um, so, you know, what it's, it would be the innate cytokines that are present at the time that a naive T cell starts proliferating uh, and then starts the differentiation process. And I think that the, um, but very early on in almost every immune response we look at, the early progeny of naive T cells will start going down one of two paths. They will become, uh, they will go down the T follicular helper cell path, or they will become a non-TFH. And then in, in, in the early progeny, as far as we can tell, split about 50-50. And then that, that, the, the, the half of that clonal burst that do not become TFH then are influenced by innate cytokines. Like if there's a lot of IL-12 around, you know, they will become a TH1. Um, and if there's a lot of, you know, IL-33, they'll become a TH2. If there's a lot of, um, you know, IL-6 IL and TGF-beta, they'll become a TH17. But that early bifurcation 
the, the thing that, you know, from our work, Shane Crotty, you know, Troy Ranoff, a lot of people looking at this suggest that the, that the IL-2 receptor signaling through STAT-5 is the key that, to that early bifurcation. And one of the main thing that controls the IL-2 receptor is the TCR. So you could imagine that, that naive T cells that have high affinity TCRs for the peptide of interest, that they would get a strong induction of IL-2 receptor, they'd get a lot of STAT5, and they'd be more likely to become a non-TFH because strong STAT5 signaling is, is poisonous to TFH differentiation. So it cuts off that fate. So, in, so even in the context of innate immune cytokines, that early bifurcation, might be driven to some degree by TCR sig signal strength, which could be inherent to the T cell because it's got a high affinity TCR, or it could be luck because that naive cell happens to be near an APC that has a huge amount of peptide MHC on it for anatomic reasons. And so those, but once you get a non-TFH, then it looks like um, it's really innate cytokines that are gonna determine the fate of that cell. And in our recent work, you know, a surprise that we got was that in a system that gives you, you know, um, TFH and then TH1s, because the innate immune system drives type 1 immunity, um, there's an early step in TH1 differentiation in vivo that is IL-12 independent and then gets reinforced by a second step that uh, allows the massive outgrowth of TH1s massively outgrowing the, the TFHs that form at the same time and producing this kind of super TH1 that makes a ton of gamma interferon is and is actually important for protection against the kinds of microbes that TH1 cells protect us against. On that note, uh, you've also dabbed into Treg development and Treg differentiation. And talking about CD25 uh, upregulation and TCR, the, the, the influence of TCR simulation on, on IL-2 receptor, there's this recent publication, I think it was from the lab of, of um, Alexander Rudensky, in which they actually looked into that, how important it is the strength of the TCR into upregulating IL-2 receptor and that that really uh, drives the, 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 the survival of T-Rex uh, during the, the thymic uh, selection. It's really ex exciting. I don't know if you have any comments on that. I just wanted to, to to mention it because it's it's really interesting how yeah all this you now you find these topics are so universal when it comes to CD4 um, to CD4 biology. Yeah, that's you know we don't do too much work in the thymus, but it's very clear that that IL2 receptor signaling is critical for Treg development in the thymus, and you know most of the peripheral Tregs that are Treg cells that are in the secondary lymphoid organs that have left the thymus and express CD25 and actually require it to stay alive. And so what's interesting is, you know, cause we, you know, we're, we're always trying to track antigen specific cells. When you look at an, uh, a repertoire of antigen specific CD4 cells uh, in the pre-immune repertoire, um, and, you know, for most of these, you know, that, that is one in 100,000 T cells. But, you know, a mouse might have 300 of these cells. 30 of them are Tregs. And, you know, 270 are conventional cells. And those Tregs, you know, have, they see a foreign antigen. 
presumably they get selected on some self antigen with some high affinity or continuous uh, signaling property. Uh, and, and they have CD25 like other Tregs, but when you give the antigen that, that that population is specific for, those Tregs actually downregulate CD25. They actually respond to the antigen and start proliferating. And then as the antigen clears, they put CD25 back up and use it. So there's, it's kind of the mirror image of a naive cell, which has, you know, a conventional cell has no CD25, gets activated, turns it on, uses it to proliferate. And once the antigen goes away, it, the CD25 goes away. So we're, we're you know, the, you know we, don't, we don't do a lot with Tregs, but we're kind of, we're interested in, number one, what do Tregs do in responses to foreign antigens? Why does every foreign epitope have an embedded Treg repertoire? And why is it always 10 times smaller than the conventional cells that see that same peptide? And then what do they do? Why have Tregs that are specific for a bacterial peptide? Isn't that counterproductive? Um, and so we're, we're doing experiments around trying to make repertoires that are missing only the Treg component of a repertoire specific for a single peptide to then ask, how does that repertoire? But that's not easy to do, um, but we, we wanna get at those kind of issues. Um, so Tregs probably have a role in immune responses to foreign things like infections, and that role may be different from their role in preventing autoimmunity, almost has to be. So those are some thoughts about Tregs. So I had kind of a final philosophical T cell question for you. And this has kind of come up as, as, as part of this podcast. We review, you know, recent literature in addition to talking with awesome scientists. And we, we notice that everyone talks about, well, there's this, there's this new subtype of T cell or what have you, or, you know, is it, it has mixed function of TH1 and TH2 and so on yeah. and so forth. And so the philosophical question is, I know, we you know, a lot of the work and you, you were there, obviously, uh, you know, strong cytokine mixes really can push something to Th1 or Th2 or 17 or a Treg or a CD8 T cell. But I'm wondering, as as we've gone on and how messy biology ends up being and likes to defy our ability to categorize things, how much of you think that in reality it's a spectrum that 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 the T cell that you're looking at is 80% Th1 and 20% Th2? in reality and you when when us humans are looking at it we're really just selecting the ones that are mostly one way or the other and calling it as one or the other because we categorize things but that biology is not nearly so clean so I wonder you know since you've been in this for so long if you had thoughts about what's yeah. really happening especially as all the single cell rna seq data comes out and everything else that we're seeing yeah that's a really good point i think they like any model you know, the, like the T early TH1, TH2 model, you know, was, you know, came from sledgehammer experiments. They showed extremes, um, extreme phenotypes. Uh, but I would say their, their utility was unbelievably high. You know, the field really moved forward in a productive way. And so... But as the field has grown, as you know, you mentioned, um, Jason, that we now with, with single cell RNA seq, with now more more uh, other you know flow cytometry, basically is a single cell assay. So you can look for, you know, are there any cells that express 
TBAT, the TH1 lineage defining transcription factor in IRR gamma T, the TH17 lineage described, you know, defining transcription factor. And yeah, there are some cells that express both at the same time. You can prove it. And so how did that, you know, why didn't the one lineage, you know, defining factor suppress the other one? And so I think it's fair that um, th that there are these these mixed phenotypes. You know, we like if you look at a type one immune response where you get TH1s, like in a viral infection, and TFHs. You know, some of those TFHs express small amounts of TBET and B cell six at the same time. So Tregs, you know, you have Tregs that have have FOXP3 and in some uh, in some infections or situations, they have some TBAT. Sometimes they have IR gamma T. So these mixed phenotypes exist. We're probably in a in a phase where the field is now going to chase all these gazillions of of flavors. Um, but I'm still impressed when the rubber meets the road how robust the original kind of phenotypes are. And the, and here's my evidence. Um, the field of primary immunodeficiency and the field of anti monoclonal antibody-based therapy shows us that if you don't have, if you're born without an IL-12 receptor, you don't have Th1 cells and you are gonna get an opportunistic infection from an intracellular pathogen of macrophages. If you block, if you if you're on IL-17 antibody for your psoriasis, the main effect in your immune system, you're gonna find they're not gonna have IR gamma T positive cells, and your symptoms are gonna get that skin inflammation is gonna get better. So the original paradigm still helps us understand immunopathology in humans. And so um, I get it. It's really important to understand these cells that seem to be going down. You know, you know, there was a fork in the road and they went down the middle. Uh, but I still think we can the, um, the the evidence to me of how useful the a lot of the original polar phenotypes are is how helpful they are when it comes to disease, understanding um, extremes of immunity or immunodeficiency. Really fascinating, and I think also the the field is still uh, evolving from those initial kind of breakthrough models. And as I I've also been working uh, through my PhD with with the CD4 cells, Tregs, Th17 cells, and they're really amazing cells. Uh, I don't know how how else to put it. And and uh, thank you really so much for for like. Uh, going through this uh, with us and talking about your experience in this field. It's, I think our listeners are, I'm sure, extremely uh, grateful for all the information. Um, here at the Immunology Podcast, we also like to finish up our conversations with a little bit of a question unrelated to, to, the, to research um, often. And so I wanted to ask you, um, when you're not conducting research, when you're out of the lab, uh, what are you doing? I uh, probably I'm either cycling. I, I I'm an avid cyclist. I ride 11 miles to work and 11 miles home every day, and um, I've I don't drive very often anymore. Maybe, you know I'm I'm I bike so much. 
And then we've gone <laughs> on to one car, which is my wife's car. So I, I cycle that much. I'm, I'm addicted to it, um, basically all forms of it. Um, although I've had, you know, I've had a few pretty bad bike accidents and I don't want to have any more. So I don't think I'll be doing much mountain biking, <laughs> but uh, I like cycling. I like touring. I like going as fast as my old body will go. Um, and so that's that's a main avocation of mine. I also like fishing. You know, I'm, I'm a Minnesotan. We have lots of lakes. So I like to spend time on those lakes um, trying to catch fish. You know, I usually don't, but still fun to be out in the water <laughs> around on the ice. I fish in the winter, uh, oh. which I enjoy even more than fishing in the summer, believe it or not. So those are some of my, uh, avocations. So, so related well, questions. I also fish. Um, I grew mm -hmm. up on the West coast, so I, I, but I'm now in Pennsylvania, so I'm getting used to bass when I used to do salmon. So first follow up is what do you fish? But relatedly, yeah. do you, how does biking in Minnesota in the winter work? And then also, have you ever been able to bike to go fishing? Oh, yeah. So last question first. I I've I've, I've tour with my buddies um, where we do bike camping, and I have a collapsible fishing pole. So usually we're at a campsite on a lake, and so I always there's a fishing pier, and I I fish. So I I, I do that a lot. Um, and usually in Minnesota, you know, the really prime fish to catch is the walleye which is a very a delicious freshwater fish. Um, and I also fish for bass. We have bass, large and smallmouth bass. And then we have a large pike species in Minnesota called the muskellunge, the muskie. I fish for that. I don't know. I maybe catch one of those a year and that, but that, you know, that fish can be, you know, 50 inches long. And that's a big, big, looks like an alligator. Yeah. So I've done steelhead, which get up to seven feet and, it's like pulling a dinosaur wow. out of yeah. the water. Yeah. So those are those are oh, some wow. do. And and in, in biking and, and in some in Minneapolis is, you know, sometimes Portland beats us, but we're often the number one bike city in the country. Large we have so many bike trails and they keep them pretty much open in the winter. So for my winter bikes, I I use studded tires and that to grab the ice or it's pretty, you know, pretty nasty. I didn't know they made well, that. If I, sorry, if I may say, uh, you're, I, I assume you're aware that Amsterdam is biking capital of the world. Maybe not, maybe not all terrain. Everything's pretty flat here, but yeah. for nice views from the next to the canals, uh, you can always come here with your bike. Yeah, in good company. I would love to do that. Although I've I've been to Amsterdam many times, and uh, I'm just amazed at how many bikes there are near cars and how it, it just. Um, that would be kind of, it would be scary for, uh, for me to be in cycling in Amsterdam and maybe get out away from town and, you know, out touring. No, no, but the cars, the cars just are behind the bike. So the bike's first and the car second. That's how it works here. So no worries. No worries. That's good. I'm just afraid if you tried that in Boston. You'd, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Combat driving. Let me tell you. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thanks for listening to my opinions. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at immunologypodcast.com to get show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.